fan technology is always getting better, right? They're getting more efficient, uh, better control, uh, more pressure stable. So I think that's going to help producers a lot in the, in the long run on being effective at ventilating well. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. I'm Dr. Karen Grug, and I'm your host today. And with me today, I have Dr. Brett Ramirez. And Brett is a faculty member at Iowa State University. And he um, serves uh, a couple of different roles. So welcome to the show, Brett. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Excellent. So um, we were chatting about life in academia. So tell us what your jobs are at Iowa State. Sure. Um, so my my primary hat and the hat I've worn for the last five and a half years is a uh, professor in agricultural and biosystems engineering, mainly focused on our animal production systems engineering focus area, which for me includes uh, I'd say a fairly wide variety of topics related to uh, environmental, environmental control and ventilation, uh, precision livestock management technologies, and animal mortality management. And I also do a mix of research and extension. Then my other hat that I've more recently found is uh, my role as the assistant director for the Egg Industry Center, which is a uh, national scope organization that uh, really aims to lead the industry in funding um, you know, relevant research uh, that uh, meets the needs for producers. Awesome. Awesome. So in terms of the Egg Industry Center, uh, what types of projects do you, um, do you guys support and, and what, what work do you do through the Egg Industry Center? Yeah, so we uh, support a wide variety of research topics. A lot of those topics are uh, developed here with the assistance of the board. And uh, we go through a competitive funding process that usually starts around the end of the year. So be on the lookout for later this year. Um, and I'd say we cover topics of health, nutrition, environmental management, uh, technology. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty open. Um, and we're always looking to in, 
increase our funding allocation this year. So we just got through, um, you know, that decision process for this year um, at some point here. Um, and otherwise, in terms of my role, um, I'm my primary goal is to really help facilitate the the research side of it. So managing um, the RFAs, the uh, proposals review on that side of things, and also help on the um, outreach side of things and creation of information products that can be used by producers, uh, engaging with producers and industry stakeholders, uh, and making sure the you know the good research and scientific based information is getting disseminated and adopted. And and then as far as like the support for the egg industry center, does that come from? corporations that that pay in or where does that the funding come from yeah so i believe uh i think the egg industry center has now been around for just shy of 10 years i'd have to check on that but it's somewhere around there um, a lot of that is through uh private support by producers allied industry um and i think several other uh organizations uh here in the united states and i believe from canada um and so it's kind of a, a wide variety of of funding sources that supports the egg industry center. And then it's kind of just housed here at uh, Iowa state, uh, but it really is national in scope. And, and our, our goal is really to, you know, fund research that, that meets the needs for producers and be kind of that, that scientific, um, you know, aspect of, of the industry to generate information. Excellent. I, I know several researchers that have received, um, uh, grants for projects um, through you guys and and the work that that you support is definitely needed and um, needed by our industry so in terms of um, what got you interested in engineering and ventilation and um, environmental control for livestock production yeah it's a that's a good question that it's going to take a second to respond to <laughs> that's totally fine um, yeah I, I don't really come from a rural rural or agricultural community. Um, I grew up in the suburbs pretty much, but a little bit outside. Um, you know, my dad's a civil engineer. So, so the engineering side of me was, uh, that path was one direction. Um, it just came down to, uh, I was interested in, in food and, and more on the eating side of it than the production <laughs> side. So isn't everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I was like, well, I guess agriculture engineering seemed like to be a good fit. And, um, you know, I, enrolled at University of Illinois uh, to do my bachelor's. And then I, you know, like all eager undergraduates. And if you're listening, please reach out to your professors. They always need help for undergraduate research assistants. Um, got engaged with some faculty and started working on um, more, um, you know, animal-based projects, um, mainly just working on either we were tracking cattle, I think, when we were an undergrad for some grazing studies. Um, and then, Stayed there for my master's and worked on quantifying methane emissions from beef cattle. Um, and that, that's kind of what kept me in the, the, the ag engineering side and animal production systems. And then went over to Iowa State for my PhD, where I worked more on uh, swine production systems and environmental control related to that. And then stayed on as faculty. Right. They kept you. Awesome. Okay, so you mentioned you quantified methane production from beef cattle. I'm just really curious in terms of, um, you know, I think cattle and the cattle industry gets a bad rap for, you know, contributing to total methane production. So your research in that, what did you find? So as a, the engineer side of me, I worked on mainly the gas sampling system to quantify the oh, methane. To figure out how to capture it. Yep. Okay. And so we 
we had designed and constructed constructed um, some respiration chambers. And, um, you know, I'd say almost all of my work is multidisciplinary. I rarely have a project where it's just me on it. I, I'm always working with colleagues in either vet medicine or animal science um, to do these projects. So um, my roommate and uh, grad, other grad student at the time, uh, Dr. Jacob Seegers, was doing the uh, looking at the dietary effects of, I believe they were feeding different inclusion rates of corn or something. Okay. <laughs> you see where my nutritional back is. This is very, yeah, very minimal. Veterinarians were the same way. We're just, you know, oh, there's nutrition. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and I, it's been a while since that paper was published. Right. right. <laughs> so You've got other things here. on your brain. But yeah, our, our focus was mainly on creating the, the gas sampling system, making sure the data was good, um, you know, accurate, reliable, and going through commissioning the system and, and pr doing the calculations to actually determine the emission rate uh, being erected from those cattle. Interesting. Um, okay, that was a little a little side conversation. Just always curious, you know, we, we all work in similar production systems. I think we can learn things um, from our colleagues in, in the other, other food sectors. So in terms of poultry, um, what, what areas of, of work are you doing in terms of, um, you know, environmental, uh, you know, bird comfort, um, things like emissions or, you know, um, our impact on the environment? Um, I think all as, as you do work through the, the EIC or other grants, um, you know, what, what are you finding out and what are you giving back to the, to the producers in terms of trying to improve things they're doing? Sure. Um, yeah, again, with just the variety of the different topics I work on, I can attack this from like six different angles. Right. Uh, and we can go through all six parts, but pick, pick the first one. Sure. On a high level, I think my projects have been related to environmental control and energy and environmental management with dust and then a little bit on uh manure drying as that relates to energy and then also on uh, a little bit on uh, ammonia and dust emissions from from uh, uh, poultry housing so any particular one you care to start with or we can oh, i mean I, I i think all of those are important i i I think in terms of your sort of like a, like the energy piece, like you're talking about, you know, we want to get dry manure that has an energy cost to it. Um, so, you know, do you have numbers to kind of, all right, for, you know, this size egg layer complex, you're utilizing this much energy or it's costing you this much to get dry manure that's coming out? Yeah, so that's a, a good question. And uh, as part of a, a project funded through the Iowa Energy Center, we took kind of a, uh, a two-part approach to this. We started off with a survey of Iowa egg producers and kind of what their management practices were, um, just to kind of get a better understanding of what, do they know how much energy they're putting into this? How often are they drying their manure? Are they leaving it on all day? Do they have uh, manure belt dryers or not? Um, and so we went through and got a, a fairly good response rate from producers here in the state. And uh, the other thing we were interested in was, you know, do they know um, how the peak demand charges work from their rural right. energy cooperative? And do, are they taking advantage of it? And are they using any sort of technology that would uh, help maybe minimize that that peak demand? Um, and so I think I think the, the big takeaway from that 
survey was that a lot of people understand it and they have the knowledge of it, but they're not really using any sort of energy metering or or something to create get the information they need to really make the more uh, uh, decisions on what to do about it. Um, and so we had a little trouble getting some like cage-free data just with some of the right. facilities and, and just kind of it being it a little bit different than your traditional manure belt mm-hmm. house with, with blowers on it. Um, but it kind of gave us a little information to, to help kind of further our, our hypothesis on what people were doing and thinking um, and that we need technology to regulate this. So the second part of that project was then, um, you know, can we use a variable frequency drive or, or other technologies to slow the blowers down during the peak charges when energy is the most expensive? Or, mm-hmm. you know, can we stop drying for a few hours? Right. Just, and, you know, and is that going to affect manure quality? Um, so we finished that up, I think, last year, and we're still chewing through the data as we monitored the site for uh, is well over six months. So it just generated a, a wealth of information right. that we're still, still chewing through at the moment. And and in in terms of that, would like electric co-ops and electrical companies, I would think that they would want to to partner with larger um, larger facilities, especially when there's peak consumption. Um, you know, to help them try to find these efficiencies. Um, how how can um, producers or, or companies how how do they you know, figure out which pieces are, how do you identify what are the biggest like energy users on your facility? Yeah. Um, right. So in w- one of our motivations for this is as we build new houses or remodel houses and they get, they haven't gotten smaller, at least in my experience. Oh, uh, well, especially where you are in Iowa, the, this, it's the larger, more birds in one place. That's the way they're built. So. Yeah, and, and for all that extra means extra energy, which means more grid strain, and that's more energy that has to be produced. And so there's that that trickle down effect um, on on those RECs and and what they have to provide. And so for producer, I think the first one is is understand how they're being billed. Um, is it a flat rate or is it a, do they have peak demand charges? Because it 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 all depends on a lot of different factors. That it's hard to you know make a widespread you know, analysis of how that works in the, the industry. And then the next one is, is, is typically, I think there's some previous studies um, that show that really manure belt drying is probably one of the more, uh, it counts for uh, somewhere between like 40 and 60, 60% of the energy usage. It, it's fairly high. Oh, wow. That's very high. I would have never, it, like, there's a lot of automated things going on in a layer house that's you know, constantly moving, you know, I would have thought fans, you know, just the ventilation fans would be, um, you know, a greater contributor, but. Yeah. The, the manure is just because of, I think the, the 24 hour a day nature or, you know, constant versus, you know, with ventilation, you can go from, you know, a couple fans to all the fans, you know, each day, which kind of, you know, just depends on the weather. We're in the South. We run ours a lot. (laughs) Yeah. You're in, in the higher ventilation stages much more than we are. Um, but yeah, it's taking a look at, and I know a lot of the, some of the newer cage-free barns around here don't have any manure belt drying on them. They just more or less use the vent- the air inside the house, kind of dries them out to an acceptable level, which, you know, obviously significantly reduces the energy costs um, on those farms um, just by not using dedicated, you know, multi-horse blowers compared to, 
you know, some fans are half horse, one horse. They're a lot, lot smaller motors on the fans. And in terms of compare, like you're, you're talking about sort of built style houses, you know, we, we do occasionally, um, you know, still have some A-frame pit houses still around. Um, and, and that, those don't even really, um, probably have the same systems correct in terms of you know i think there's fans down there but it's not the same it's not they're not the same technology right yeah it's a little bit different right just barely dry i feel like those are just <laughs> just to keep piling <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's hard to dry the inside you can't of a dry, pile. no you cannot dry the inside of a pile um one of the other topics you mentioned was in terms of um like ammonia and dust dust is something that we constantly kind of fight within a layer house um environment and as it's kind of been in uh well within a, a u.s conversation in terms of pathogens um and in terms of disease control um do you do you look at that at all you know you talked about kind of a multidisciplinary approach um, I know that there's been conversations on certain things becoming airborne, like avian influenza. And there's research that says, no, it can't be. And then we have like probably, you know, cases in hand of, well, it's, you know, probably pretty likely. So um, any any work that you've done on that, given, you know, sort of the current state um, within the U.S. and really the world at this point? Yeah, I'll, tr I'll, I'll try to answer that. Kind of. So the, the short answer is kind of. Um, so the a project I have, which was funded through the, uh, egg industry center was looking at creating a, uh, modified dust, dust ball procedure so that we can test different, uh, you know, cage-free litter additives that would help reduce dust. So, or dust generation potential inside the barn. And so we're in the process of creating a system where we can do different inclusion rates, test different polymers, and then basically simulate dust generation and then sample that to see if we're actually having a impact on reducing that dust generation potential so that's currently ongoing i've got a, a postdoc who's working on that at the moment but in terms of going back to the pathogen side of things i haven't really done too much in poultry i actually just had a project funded um, from the swine health information center on looking at using electrostatic precipitation to uh, reduce pers virus from leaving swine facilities um, so I'm hoping to get that started here in the near future. And, you know, hopefully maybe there's a lot with, with electrostatic precipitation, as we fairly well know, and it's it's effective at reducing dust um, in the air, right? It, it, it precipitates it out of the air. But what does it do in terms of pathogen inactivation? Um, and so that's what we're going to do, some fairly intense uh, aerosol sampling um, with PCR and virus isolation to determine its effectiveness on, you know, one of the most economic devastating, um, for the swine industry, at least. Yeah. Per, I remember I was a veterinary student, uh, over 20 years ago and, um, uh, it's PERS was a hot research topic at that point. And, and it, I would, I would think that, <laughs> that we're, but it's still, it's still around and, um, still poses a huge challenge to our, our friends in the swine industry. So hopefully, um, you know, the electrostatic uh, technology, I know that there's been some work done um, in poultry, um, you know, sort of dust and, and, and doing similar type of work. So good luck with that project. 
hope our friends on the swan side um, purse would be a great thing to control. And I'm sure that there are other, um, you know, diseases to consider for that as well. Um, in terms of the, um, you know, em environmental control and um, sort of, um, you know, trying to, to be as energy efficient as possible. Um, do, do you or the egg industry center, like in terms of how we use, um, you know, poultry manure, like any novel technologies of, of how we're, you know, sort of re repurposing any, any of that, all of this nice dry manure, or is it just all going to fertilizer? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I'd probably defer to Rich on that one as he's way more plugged in on the manure side of things than I am. I'm, if it involves air, I, that's where, that's where I go. And I dabble a little bit with manure. Um, but I'm, I like air and everything associated with, with air. Um, but I do know there are some pretty innovative producers out there doing some really neat things with pelletizing manure and then selling it as fertilizer. Um, and, and, really finding other avenues that basically more or less is still a fertilizer, but the way they get there is, is pretty innovative um, and how they capture that value and, and can turn it into a profit stream. So yeah, there's definitely, I mean, it's, it, it's on the, it's out there and there are some, doing some pretty, pretty neat stuff. And you, you had kind of touched on this a little bit on some of the work you're doing in terms of dust creation on cage-free housing. And as we know, um, you know, cage-free initiatives are, are, are sort of out there in timelines that either consumers or grocery stores are saying that, you know, they want all eggs cage-free by a certain time point. However, you know, sort of the implementation of that, we are challenged by some things, one of which is kind of keeping birds comfortable, like those those systems aren't necessarily as inherently easy to ventilate. They generate more dust because you have sort of this extra area, um, you know, with some kind of a, a substrate or something for them to do. So how do we make birds more comfortable in those environments? It's, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, if our industry will continue to move that way, how, how do we keep uh, bird comfort important? So I think if we look at it from, I'll take it from the environmental side of the, the air, we'll take it from like a thermal and an air quality perspective. I probably won't comment on the equipment and the housing and all of the things that go into aviary design and, and management. Um, from an air quality side, it, it, a lot of it comes down to litter depth, litter moisture content, and, and how are we managing that litter, keeping it at, at a reasonable depth, and then not keeping it super dry where it's very easy for that particulate matter to be suspended into the air, which then is going to create that dusty environment um, that, that we have came come to seen that is very prevalent in cage-free housing um, versus on the, we also need to make sure that litter moisture content doesn't get too moist because then that leads to excessive ammonia generation and then another contaminant we have to deal with. Um, so it, it comes out with litter management, um, you know, depending on whether it's a ground level floor, if you're tiered up, you know, that floor temperature is going to have an impact on that. Um, and then I've seen some pretty neat stuff with how, you know, whether it's scraping or using holes in the floor where the birds either mechanically remove some of that litter or you let the birds scratch it and then they kind of naturally remove it over time. From the thermal side, Ed, a lot of that comes down to, I think, air distribution, um, especially again, as I mentioned earlier, um, the barns are bigger. It gets a lot harder to distribute air. So making sure we're bringing the fresh air in, mixing it well, and then exhausting it with, with 
proper ventilation rates. Um, I, I think a lot of times we get ventilation rates pretty easy to achieve. We've got some good CFM for birds that we try to hit. We do a good job at doing it, but it's, it's getting that air into the, the fresh air in so we can mix and dilute what's in there, whether it's gases, uh, dust, moisture, um, you know, heat, um, and then pulling it out of the barn and doing that effectively is where the real challenge is. And that's, that's where, when it comes down to creating that good environment, it's really about that air distribution side of mixing fresh air and extracting it and such that we don't have hot spots, cold spots, moist spots, dry spots, drafty spots, non-drafty spots, and creating really a uniform environment at the, the end of the day. I think, I think those housing, because there's such variety in those aviaries or, 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 you know, sort of these sort of, um, convertible type of systems, you know, they're, they're some of these things that are going to convert to larger sizes, you know, I, I just, I see so much variation. And then like you're saying, like the, the air control and, and just, you know, almost like this, as you're talking about, like this stratification, like it just is like, it's got to be stuffy in certain places. And, um, I, I think we still have a lot to learn in, in terms of how to, um, just keep that, as you're saying, like keep the fresh air coming in and moving. Yeah. I was, I was just chatting with a colleague of mine who does uh, uh, ventilation on for a large integrator on the swine side. And he's like, you know what we need to work on is a ventilation design for large buildings, because that's where I, yeah. you know, we haven't as um, on the academic side kept up with resources on how to really design and manage just the, the, the sheer size or volume of some mm -hmm. of these spaces on that most of these uh, you know, livestock and poultry facilities have today that just wasn't even a thought of, you know, 10, 15 yeah. years ago and, you know, having to, you know, deal with a hundred foot wide by six, 700 foot long barn. Yeah. I mean, that just doesn't never, no. wasn't even conceived of having to create information to how do you design and manage some of these right. rooms of that, that scale. Yeah. And I, I think as we try to, um, you know, as we try to feed the world, I think that is just going to continue like the available land that we have, you know, you're going to have to put more animals in, in a certain, you know, number of acres. Um, like we even see it here in Georgia, like on our broiler production side, like the houses are just, you know, instead of 20 to 30,000 broilers, now we have 50 to 60,000 broilers per house, you know, so everything is just getting, you know, to that point to, and especially in a post COVID world with building costs, you know, you're going to, you're going to construct the, the largest thing that you can and try to get, you know, better. But I, I think that there are some things in terms of ventilation and, and challenges that, that we see as we do make all these things, you know, larger. And in terms of um, like inner energy, um, is there a difference between like, um, a cage-free house, you know, if, if we're looking towards that as, as sort of the next steps the industry is taking, um, are there comparisons being made in terms of, you know, the equipment itself? Um, like you're talking about in terms of ventilation, like they have a higher um, ventilation need. Um, does it take more energy to run um, a cage-free system? You know, that's a great question where I just don't think there's a whole lot of good information out there on it. Um, you know, there's 
and they're all so different is the other one that makes it so hard to comment on is just because we, you could answer that question a, a lot of different ways and still probably be wrong. <laughs> or, um, or, or correct for one operation. Yeah. Or correct. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's what makes it hard. I mean, some, it, it just depends on so many different, different factors, but um, you know, with the, the decreased stocking density has definitely led to adding heat to a lot of the barns, um, which would, you know, if we say energy broken down to propane or natural gas and electricity, you'd probably say you probably are starting to use a little bit more, more energy um, just because heat wasn't previously in a, in a conventional cage house for the most part. Um, so you have the addition of heat, although not a whole lot, but it's still added um, in terms of ventilation rate. You know, some cage free houses might be, maybe slightly higher than a conventional house, but again, it just kind of depends on how it was designed and whether, you know, it's a tunnel house, cross house, it, it all goes into what that ventilation rate is to some extent. So a little bit well, challenging to answer. Right. right. And, and, and probably differences in terms of, you know, um, climate, like, you know, if you're trying to do this, like, you know, North Dakota compared to Georgia, you know, just, we have a lot of different, you know, places and geographies where we're trying to raise all this stuff, um, raise all these birds. Yeah. And bringing up climate is such a important, uh, factor in, in design and management for ventilation, just because it, you know, different designs are more applicable in certain climates because you just don't have, you know, certain conditions that require, you know, heat or, you know, more air speeds and, and things like that. So it's always, Climate's always the first thing to consider in, in ventilation. We learned that the hard way here in uh, in Northeast Georgia. Uh, you know, over December, like we were single digit highs for a couple of days, which is unusual for us. And we, ha- you know, a lot of certain types of our housing here do not have heaters. Um, so we, especially like uh, like broiler breeder housing, they don't have heaters, or they may have one. Like they just don't because they just don't need to ever. There's enough birds; they create enough heat, and we we have seen flocks just that single impact, like flocks that were moved in or you know had recently been moved. Just that, just the the cold that they experienced um, has we we've seen some flocks impacted. So it definitely, you know, the climate definitely impacts uh, all of that. Um. What what do you see as sort of like the next generation, the technology in that that's coming in in the next several years to to sort of help steer what you do in terms of your research? Yeah, that's a excellent question. Um, I think uh, I think that technology is going to get into some better um, sensing of the conditions inside the barn. I think we've been slowly adding things like humidity sensors. We've needed that. We've needed that for years. Like, I don't feel like sensing humidity is that difficult, but it's just not nor like it's just not commonplace. Yeah, it's just it's hard with the the way that that humidity sensors, the way it functions, and then the the, the cap on it are just susceptible to you know corrosion and things. And so, and the like what what someone explained to me like they just get dusty very quickly in in barn environments, and that then they're like kind of they just stop working so, then they, they more or less stop yeah. working you get water and a little bit of ammonia and some dust you're you're basically creating something that's going to corrode any okay. any metal fairly quickly 
Um, same with the temperature sensors. It gets dust on it too. It's going to, mm-hmm. the reading's going to be different over time as it, that dust accumulates on it. Um, and that's why as we slowly get some sensors that go into that, I think we'll be maybe ventilating more off of a variety of conditions versus just maybe temperature by itself. Right. Um, I also think with you know, remote monitoring is always one that's very popular right now, just being able to access that information or even get the data of historical um, values that were in the barn or when equipment was working or when it's not a, not working. I think just having like some informational system management will be very beneficial in diagnosing, you know, ventilation problems, but also using that to, to maybe propel future ventilation designs because we can look at what happened in a variety of conditions to know do we need to change something here or there. Um, for something in the, in, in the future. Fan technology is always getting better, right? They're getting more efficient, uh, better control, uh, more pressure stable. So I think that's going to help producers a lot in the, in the long run on being effective at ventilating well. Do we see a place for artificial intelligence in terms of uh, moving into livestock industries? That's kind of like the, but I see that everywhere. And like, at first I'm like, even influenza and they're like no artificial intelligence and so or artificial insemination right right true yes from our yes yes or cattle background yeah all of us we're like ai what but artificial intelligence so i just came from actually i was in tennessee the earlier this week at the uh second u.s precision livestock farming conference And uh, this was a bit of a. There's probably a lot of artificial intelligence. Yeah, and it's it's I I I, I might be a little skeptic here, um, but it it probably has a role in certain aspects. Um, but I think a lot of things that are more deterministic by nature, such as you know engineering design and and some other things that you know there's no place for black boxes because you don't know what's in the black box, hence black box. And so I think certain things that we need to understand what's going on. Um, rather than uh, blindly trusting outputs and, and things that are making decisions only off of what they're trained on, uh, I'd I see is going to be challenging in a lot of things is just with, with a lot of artificial intelligence is, if, you know, the diversity in the data set is really what drives the robustness of that model um, or the, out, the usable outputs from that model. Uh, and I think we, we tend to not get as much data as we might need to make a really good artificial intelligence system, um, at least on, from what I see. But I think there's, for certain things on, you know, improving, oh, I don't know, just using it to like automate or make other tasks simpler, um, I, I think will be really helpful, especially like I just can't wait for chat GPT to be interfaced into Outlook so I don't even have to respond to certain emails right. anymore. <laughs> just generate. It'll just generate the emails for you. Right. I mean, there's just certain ones where I just don't need to. I mean, right. Outlook's already prompting <laughs> phrases that I can just yes, click and send. It with. does. It already helps finish your sentence. It, it's, it saves a lot of time. And I think, you know, you know, poultry industry and almost all the other livestock industries are facing such a severe oh, labor shortage. Yes, we can't hire people for it half of the jobs yes major shortage and so i you know i think for artificial intelligence using it to to help with that labor shortage would probably be you know something i would look into is just how do you you know use it to to uh, whether automate simpler tasks or at least for that person you know remove some of the tasks so they can go do the other things that are more needed um rather than things that don't don't require such a level of, of human input um Maybe 
one I've seen a lot of things, probably this precision thing that you, you were discussing in terms of like robots, like for picking up mortality and, and things like that. Um, I, I would imagine, you know, our labor shortages may, I don't, I don't know how that technology will get there, but maybe one day we'll have um, robotics for, you know, sort of daily house tasks. A lot, a lot of the things within the, the industry take a person you know, so. Yeah, I think there's a few companies that have a mortality yeah. robot. Yeah. I'm not sure. If I haven't seen one. I, haven't, I keep hearing about them. I haven't seen them. I think they get pitched to, to growers more so than than we do. But um, I think that, you know, we're, we're getting there in terms of uh, new technologies. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions, from essential vitamins like HYD to next-generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. So, Brett, if, if uh, you know, listeners out there are interested in getting more information, um, I'm sure they can find you on the Iowa State uh, webpage. And, um, and for any students that might be listening, what advice would you give them if they're interested in, in sort of this area of, of agricultural engineering and um, systems management? Sure. Um, there's... There's not a whole lot of programs in this country that offer ag engineering. Um, there's probably less than 15, I think, at the end of the day. Um, but if you're interested in it, what what I think is great about this program for livestock and poultry production is that it, it really blends the animal side with the technology side. Rather than focusing on one or the other, you really can. I mean, a lot of my students that work in industry today all have uh, minors in animal science. Um, and so they all have a good understanding of the animal side and the husbandry side, but also, you know, how to manage technology, design technology, create technology, evaluate technology, which I think is going to just be so much more critical than, than, you know, the husbandry side of things is slowly, I think, decreasing to some extent and more, you know, there's so much just automation anymore on farms that, you know, having a systems view of how this works and how do I use information from these systems uh, to more efficiently produce uh, animal products, I think is, is growing, but I would say for students, you know, if you're interested, um, Iowa state has a great ag engineering Iowa program. State. We have one at UGA too. Yep. So there's, there's some really good ones out there and I, you know, if you're really interested in it. It's, it, it's a good opportunity that if you want, don't want to just be stuck doing programming and robots, you can actually use it to a, what, what I like about the word agriculture is it's really applied. You can actually use it to do something meaningful and, and really, you know, beneficial to society at the end of the day, and that's that's what that's why I like what I get 
get to do on a day-to-day basis. That's cool. Yeah. I still like, every time I walk into two places, I am envious of engineers that can think of these things. One is any type of processing plant, be it any, any type, any type of processing, like the automation just continues to amaze me of what we're able to do. Like we have, you know, uh, basically like robotic deboners at this point in terms of poultry processing. And that just amazes me. And then the other place that I keep getting amazed in is egg handling and egg processing in terms of, you know, these big inline complexes and you get to the end and you have all this equipment to do everything. And, and that is a place that I have seen robots replace people that they have robots actually stacking and banding and, and doing a lot of, um, a lot of the jobs that, uh, you know, people used to do in those facilities. But again, the technology just blows my mind in terms of, you know, there's a, a thing carrying an egg down and it's weighing it. And then, oh, wait, it needs to go to this line in terms of, you know, creating things by weight. So. Yeah, it was, it, it was pr- pretty amazing. I, we actually were just meeting uh, the EIC was, and we were actually just talking about one of those, one of those systems and how, you know, that technology might not re- It'll allow you to use people for other things that 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 need it, where you didn't need to have those people, and just how I think, you know, just how much less labor is needed, and you're not going through the challenges of labor availability if you don't don't really need them, or you can hire, have the ability now to maybe replacing multiple employee lower level employees with a couple higher level employees that will now allow you to utilize that technology to you know to its maximum benefit. Interesting stuff. So, so yes, thank an engineer when when uh, those things enter enter our field. Um, well, Brett, it was really nice chatting with you today, and um, thanks for joining us on the Poultry Podcast Show. And listeners, uh, if you want more information, uh, find Brett at Iowa State. And um, thanks again for your time today. Appreciate it. Sounds good. And the last thing I'll say is. Um... The uh, Egg Industry Issues Forum will be held in Indiana, Indianapolis, Indiana at the uh, end of October. And please look forward to an announcement here soon. Awesome. Indianapolis, great place to be. Egg Industries Issue Forum. Look for that announcement from um, the Egg Industry Center. Thanks for your time, Brett. Yep. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too.